Welcome back to Colossians. We are going to continue today in our series in the study of Colossians. If you have your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to finish this, what I've called a pivotal section, um, in verses 6 through 15. We're going to finish the last few verses of that, that one passage. We're going to be in verse 13 through 15. And uh, prayerfully next week we will be out of chapter 2. We've been in chapter 2 for a long time, huh? So Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we have some down the middle aisle stacked up underneath the chairs. You are welcome to use those as we read together today. And if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give that to you to have as your own. We're going to read these verses out loud. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Everybody got it? Okay, let's read together. Here we go. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray. Father, grateful for your word today. Uh, We thank you for the gathering of your church. It's raining outside, and uh, that, that kind of puts a sullenness in our spirit, uh, but we thank you even for the rain. Uh, we thank you for the, the end of winter here in the D.C. area, and uh, we look forward to uh, all that the spring will do, both for uh, the earth, uh, this area, and just for our hearts. Uh, we, we long for Uh, The springtime, when things come back alive, we see flowers blooming, we see trees and leaves bursting out, and it it seems like things come to life. We're going to talk about things coming from death to life today in this passage. I pray that you would help us to see that um, in many ways we can be dead and not even know it. And it's in you that we come to life. Jesus brings us to life by his death on the cross. Help us to see that today in these words of scripture. We pray that in Jesus' great name. And everyone said, amen and amen. All right, so what Paul is doing here in this book of Colossians is is speaking to a local church. And I think there's, there's two points that... Um, I want to bring out as we enter the text today. And the first is this idea of of him speaking to a local church. Um, You know, the the church is a a big idea in Scripture. It's not just a New Testament idea. It's an idea that goes from cover to cover of your Bible. The church is, firstly, the, the, the summation of Christians on the earth, those who profess faith in Jesus But the church is the vehicle that God uses to advance his kingdom. So all the churches, not just in our area, but throughout the world, the universal church is uh, is a grand, the grand idea of scripture by by which God um, makes his plan come to fruition. This plan to redeem a world fallen by sin and he's taking us somewhere. And so Paul in Colossians is addressing a New Testament church. And we here, the, tra- the transit, we're, we're a church, okay? And what he would want us to know as the church are some of the, the very things that he's talking to the, the Colossians about. What is he talking to them about? In chapter one, he's reminding them of, he's, he's 
he's exhorting them and how they came to faith that the, the gospel in them is bearing fruit and it's growing. He's uh, giving them accolades in terms of how they were growing in their belief in Jesus. And we, you know, we need to be reminded of that as well. Why? Because we forget. Okay, we forget a lot about our faith. We forget how it was before we came to came to Jesus. And very simply, we always need to be reminded of who we once were, what we once believed, who God is and what he's called us to. And in chapter two, as we're in the midst of chapter two, Paul to the Colossians, he's alerting them, warning them of all kind of dangers that can pervade the church. Okay, he says that you have the opportunity to be uh, persuaded by philosophy and empty to see. And there's all kinds of uh, persuasive arguments that could get you derailed off of believing in the, the gospel that the Bible portrays Jesus and him crucified. And then he like, you know, sort of like shoving a person over and getting them in a, a straight line like you do young kids in elementary school. He, he shoves them back over and said, hey, th- this is who God is. This is who you are in light of who God presents himself to be. Walk like this. He does that in chapter two. When we get to chapter three, when we when we get to chapter three, he's going to uh, exhort the Colossians about uh, relationships and, um, you know, Husband to wife and wife to husband, our parent um, interacting with their kids and how uh, a subordinate should uh, interact with their boss. Okay, so he's giving some very practical information about how we, the church, should operate. Another thing that we see in terms of this letter that might help us is how, you know, is leadership in the church. We see leadership firsthand through the Apostle Paul. And I would tell you, one of the one of the things that's interesting that we see in this book, but pretty much all the, new, uh, the epistles, is that two of the, the marks of a leader of the church are two words that we don't like a lot. And there's it's suffering and um, I just let's look at that suffering. OK, Paul talks about suffering several times in this in this book. He talks about it in chapter one. He talks about it in chapter two. He says, I'm suffering for you and how you're growing, the things that you're experiencing in in your life as you try to believe what God has done for you and live it out. He mentions someone named Epaphras, who he says suffers for you in his in his prayers. Okay, and I think one of the misnomers of that we have about about leaders in the church. Of course, I, I want all of you all to, to go as far in God as, as he takes you. But one of the misnomers that we have about uh, what leaders are supposed to do, especially pastors in regard to you, is, is that we're supposed to help you. Y'all, do y'all agree a pastor's supposed to help you? Some of y'all are saying, well, I, I don't, I think so, maybe. Aren't you supposed to help us, Jeff? I, I would say yes. But a, a leader, a pastor in particular, is not just supposed to help you. We're supposed to help you grow in spiritual maturity. OK, so that's just more than helping you. Sometimes helping you is making sometimes people say help me. They want they want the church to be benevolent toward them and their need. Sometimes helping means make me make my pain go away. Help me feel better, satisfy a need in my life. And I would tell you a church leader is not necessarily there to help you in in those ways. They're to help you. Grow spiritual, mature, uh, grow in spiritual maturity, particularly a spiritual leader, a pastor is there to help you grow in spiritual understanding. 
knowing who God is and what he's done for you. And I would tell you that's what Paul is doing in this book. The other thing that a, a, a spiritual leader is supposed to help you do is grow in spiritual understanding. And growing in spiritual understanding simply means what in light of who God is, what how am I supposed to live? And, and I mean, have, have we see, we've seen that in almost every passage that we've looked at in in this in this book. I would I would add on to that. Not only does a, a spiritual wisdom help you know how to live in light of who God is, but it's knowing how to live in God's strength and not your own. Because that's what we try to do as as religious people. We we try to be good. We try to do good. We try to look good where God is trying to help us not necessarily be good, but count on him for our strength that we would live in him instead of all the external things that we try to to do in life. So Paul is addressing all these things in this letter. I think um, when we come to this passage here, verses 13 through 15, essentially this text is about what separates the people from God. And what God has done to deal with that gap, God is God closes the gap between who we are and what he's called us to. And we're going to talk about that today. All right. There's a little bit of theology here. All right. So buckle your seatbelts. Um, theology is good for you. Theology is your uh, what you understand about God. It's your study of God. And I would tell you, all of you, whether you've opened a book and studied theology or not, have a theology. OK, you have an understanding of who you think God is and what he's supposed to do for you. That's your theology. So Paul is giving us a little bit of theology today about God. And you need that because Christianity is a thinking religion. It's, it's a thinking. You have to read a little bit. You've got to study a little bit. God requires you to know something to even have relationship with him. And so Paul is going to exhort us today that, you know, we've got to know something. So don't shy away from, from theology. All right. With that, we're going to start. I'm going to we're going to this is a good news passage. OK, this is all good news today. So I don't have any bad news. Well, I'm going to present some bad news. I got to present bad news. You, you don't know how good the good news is unless you know how bad the bad news is. Right. So I'm presenting good news. Just put that in the back of your mind. But to get to the good news, we got to go through Satan. We got to go through some death. And then I'm going to give you some good news. All right. So let's I'm going to start in verse 15. I'm going to start all the way at the end at verse 15. It says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, if we were to take that verse and just singularly try to figure out what it means. I mean, who is the he? Who are the rulers and authorities? Uh, What is it that's who's triumphed? Okay, Uh, we could be kind of lost if we just jump into this text right here and try to figure all this out. I said this. I said something to my community group this week that I think might be helpful for all of us. Whenever you're reading a a text of scripture, just a verse, several verses, and something doesn't make sense, you can't put together who's who and what's going on, then this principle usually always applies. Scripture interprets scripture. That means take out what you think are some of the, the most important words in the particular verse. Go in the back of your Bible to your concordance and see if that word exists in there. OK, and look it up and see what the see what verses you come up with. And so in this case, I'll model this. If we go to Ephesians six, verses 10 through 12, we see some of the same words 
here in 6, uh, Ephesians 6 that we saw in Colossians 2.15. This is what Ephesians 6, 10 through, 10, through, 10 through 12 says. Can't even talk. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. A couple words here in this Ephesians text that are similar to what Paul says in uh, Colossians 2.15. And way back when, when we started Colossians, I, I reminded you. What Paul writes in Ephesians and Colossians go hand in hand together. He he says some of the things to both of those churches, um, exhorting them along the same lines. And so what we find out here is the commonality between this Colossians verse and Ephesians. He's talking about rulers and authorities. And as we dig in a little bit into this Ephesians passage, we figure out he's talking about Satan and demons, Satan and his host of demons. We find out you, know, you can't go to one singular passage in Scripture and figure out all that you need to know about Satan. OK, you got to go. He spread out all over the Bible. We were introduced to him through the form of the serpent. The serpent is possessed by uh, the devil in Genesis three. We see Satan show up in Job. OK, he's suggested in the prophets. Ezekiel 28 is one of the places where we learn quite a lot about him. Of course, Jesus talks. Jesus is tempted by him. The apostles and the epistles talk about him. And then Revelation, he appears in grand scheme again um, in this apocalyptic book that sort of frames the end of time. Particularly in Ezekiel and in Revelation, we learn that Satan was an angel. Okay, he was an angel. God made him. Um, as part of the angelic beings, one of the most beautiful creatures of of that kind of being that there was. He was the worship leader in heaven. Um, Ezekiel sort of suggests that he spread his wings and he would have all kinds of instruments under his wings and he play them and grand music would come out as he and the angels offered worship to God. Um, scripture tells us Satan rebelled. He rebelled against God. There was a war in heaven because Satan wanted he wanted God's glory. And so there there was a war and Satan and his host of angels with him were thrown down. They were thrown down to earth. Satan loses. Obviously, we don't know how many angels a third of the angels is, but that's what scripture says, that Satan and a third of the angels were defeated and thrown down to earth. And so now he's the God of this world. Ephesians 2 says he's the prince of the power of the air. And there really are two extremes when you think about, I mean, you've you've encountered this. Maybe you are one of these people yourself. There's two different extremes that we can have in regards to our thinking about Satan. Either uh, either we're obsessed with him. We see Satan under every rock. He's in our purse. Anything bad that happens to me, the devil did it. I mean, y'all know. Seriously, y'all have seen those kind of people, right? Or you're the opposite extreme. You you dismiss him totally. And he absolutely almost doesn't even exist. I would tell you, I I don't I don't give. I'm the kind that I almost dismiss Satan. I don't give him enough credit. But some of you might be the type of person that you give him more credit than he deserves. You have a car accident. uh, You stub your toe. 
something happens to one of your kids, Satan is always attacking you, he's influencing in your life. And I would, I would tell you, yes, he is in, in many ways, but oftentimes we give credit to Satan for doing things that he is not even involved in. It's just all you. You're, you're sinning and you're, you're experiencing the repercussions of your sin. So two extremes, you, you will likely fall in either one of those. I think there's a middle ground. The Bible calls us to have a middle ground in regards to our approach to Satan and and demons. And the middle ground simply is that we're to acknowledge his presence, that he's real. He's a real entity, but we're not to be obsessed about him. And that would be the middle ground that the Bible espouses. And and really, uh, we can look at scripture and see that Satan is real and he is a formidable foe because the Bible has all kind of names for him. Listen to these names. He's called murderer, deceiver, enemy, evil one, serpent, father of lies, accuser, adversary, tempter, destroyer, liar, deceiver. Perhaps the, the verse that encapsulates uh, who say who the devil is and what we should believe about him is first Peter five. First Peter five, eight says this. It says, be sober minded. Sober minded means be reasonable. OK, don't be too outlandish. Don't think that Satan is under every rock and he's in everything that happens to you because he's not. Some of that is you and the, the consequences of your sin. But then it says in the very next word, it says, be watchful. That means it, it's a warning. That he's out there. He's real. And because you're a Christian trying to worship Jesus and do what God says, he's going to target you. Be reasonable. He's not doing everything, but be watchful. Why? Because he's your adversary. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And my summation of this is this is my summation of of who the devil is. He's he's not an enemy. He's your enemy. He's not an enemy. He's your enemy, especially if you believe in Jesus. And we see this in Scripture from the very beginning. Um, Satan has he, his his war has been waged on image bearers. Image bearers are human beings like you and I. Anybody that God created human beings on day six of creation and he made them in his image and likeness. And so we have value, worth, dignity. We represent God on the earth and Satan targets God's image bearers. The lesson learned of Genesis three when Satan came to Adam and Eve is that Satan always pushes us to question God's word. He said to think about what he said to Eve. Did did God really say don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of of good and evil? He he intimidated her. He deceived her to questioning God and his word. And I would tell you every time you open your Bible, every time you get into a spiritual conversation, every time you are uh, encouraged to witness, to test, to be, to be, a, uh, to give a testimony about your faith. Every time you come to church, there's this opportunity for Satan to to to, to try and deceive you, and he tries to que- get you to question: it, does, Did God really say what's written down in these words of Scripture? Are they really inspired for us? Should we really receive them as coming from God? He'll do that to you this very morning. The other thing I think that that Satan does is. Uh, he makes us question, um, is, 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 is God really, is he holding something out on us? The thing that made Adam and Eve um, do what God said not to do is Satan deceived them and caused them to believe that God did not want them to be like him. 
Surely he didn't say don't eat of that tree because he knows that if you eat it, you'll you'll have you'll have full knowledge. You'll be like him when God had already made them like him in his image and likeness. And so for those of you that are outdoorsmen, Satan is like a good fisherman. Um, I'm not as an adult. I haven't been a fisherman at all. But when I was young, under 10, I went fishing a lot with my grandmother on my mother's side. Um, And here's the deal with when you're fishing. um, You have to hide the hook. In fact, I've got a war room on my on my left pinky. Uh, My granddad took me fishing and I was trying to hide the hook. Right. I was trying to I was baiting my hook. And my granddad had just taught me how to do that. And little Jeff, I, the hook, how did that happen? The devil made me do it. Right. <laughs> my, the hook got caught in my pinky. And if you touch my pinky right here. All right. So I, I got blood on this side. You can't do that. That's that's a good story. Um, I've got a, uh, an everlasting war wound on my left pinky from trying to hide the hook. And this is what Satan does. He tries to hide the hook. So with Adam and Eve, he hid the hook. And guess what? They bit like like. Like a fish, neat, fish hungry in the water early in the morning. They bit the hook. They sinned. They did what God said not to do. And he will do that very same thing with us. And, and from their one act, this, this principle of, of, of federal headship, Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, deceived by Satan, biting that hook. Sin enters the world. It enters our world. And sin is like this contagious disease. It, it spreads everywhere. OK, and it's ha- it has spread to you as well. It spreads to every human being. Romans 5:12 says this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all have sinned. And so sin and spiritual death has spread to all. And because sin is everywhere, Satan has influence everywhere, even through you oftentimes. If you let him, he's the God of this world. And so when we sin, we are aligning ourselves with the God of this world. Satan is a hidden enemy for you military types out there. He's like a sniper. So what's the deal with a sniper? He's hidden. okay? and you might not see a sniper, but you see and you perhaps feel the result of his work. The the greatest um, deception that Satan gets us to believe is that he's not there Seriously, if you if you if you like like I I sometimes do in my life, if you pretend like he's not there, you just totally dismiss him and you say that all your issues are psychological or they're physiological. It's it's something going on in me. It's not out there. It's not evil in the world that's doing this to me. Then you have done the very thing he wants you to do. Dismiss him because he's that hidden sniper that's that's going to take you out because you believe he's not there. He's behind the scenes. Um, you know, oftentimes we see the evil in our world. Is there a lot, there's a lot of evil in our world. Think about it. Aren't, isn't there? Wouldn't you agree? There's evil in our world. This is where we see evil. We see it in the wars that are going on. You, you're reading the Bible. There's wars and rumors of wars. It's happening now. These we're in the, the times where wars they've been going on for a long time. Wars and rumors of wars are happening right now. Uh, there are ongoing terrorist attacks. You know, terrorist attacks were before 9-11 and they have I mean, they've escalated ever since 9-11 and they're ongoing all the time. We see evil in the world and we see Satan in it. Uh, We see um, we see evil in the movies that we watch. In fact, the movies that we watch uh, so uh, desensitize us to evil 
that that we counted as normal. Um, Larissa and I were in the kids had gone to bed and I don't know what day it was this week, but we're in the bedroom. I broke my iPad out and we're going to catch up on a, uh, one of the nighttime dramas that we usually watch. I think it was on ABC, the ABC app on my on my iPad. And uh, I'm just watching. And then all of a sudden, this just horrific and very graphic commercial comes on. A trailer for a new horror movie comes out. And so Larissa's not watching. She's like, what in the world are you watching? I felt I felt guilty. Isn't that crazy? I felt guilty. This is just a commercial that came on. I was like, it's it's not my I didn't do it. (laughs) The the, the, the app just brought this commercial. It was it was really it. And it, what it did for us, it, it proved how desensitized we are, but how blatant evil is in our world. At, on ABC, they would show this upcoming horror movie. And, you know, we have teen wolves and vampires and you know, they're in books that our, that our kids read. And we believe that stuff is, is normal. When all it is, it's evil personified right in front of us and we've become desensitized to it. And so we should see evil all around us. We should see Satan and his influence behind much of this stuff. But I would tell you, here's here's the here's the warning from from Pastor Jeff is that oftentimes we think that evil and Satan, all that stuff or it's out here. It's in the world. It's coming through terrorism and wars and, and through the, the social media. God help the people that come up with those horror movies. Can you just imagine what's going on inside of them to come up with that stuff? I mean, creative, yes. Gift, yes, that God gave them. But think about the way that they're using it. They're being used by Satan to, to you know, to promulgate that stuff for our eyes and our our hearts to, to take in. And we do. I was going to say we do because we're stupid, but I take that back. <laughs> Watch my mouth. Um, what was I going to say? We think that evil's out here. This, guess what the Bible says? The Bible says start within. Because evil out here starts with evil inside of us. Honestly. And that's a hard word, but it's true. And that's what, that brings us to Colossians 2.13. And you who were dead in the dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. I'm going to read that again. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. I'll stop right there. We're going to finish the rest of this of this verse later on in my sermon. Paul is saying to the Colossians, you were dead. All right. We just finished Satan. This is the death part. You, You were dead. And so you should immediately be asking, well, He's writing to a group of people who are very much alive. They're living, breathing human beings. How can he call them dead? Okay. It's in the the words here. He says, he says, you can be very much alive in the world, but yet still be dead. And the reason how you can be very much alive in the world and still be dead is because he's not talking about being dead in your body or in your mind. He's talking about being dead in your soul. Soul is that part of you that only God can can create. And so he says you're dead in your trespasses. That 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 term literally means you're dead because of your trespasses and trespasses. The NIV translation of the Bible simply calls it sins. Another way of describing that would be to slip up, to stumble, to deviate, to go in the wrong direction. And so Paul is saying here, we are dead morally. We're dead in those ways that we try to do right, 
do, to do good in our own strength. But we're also dead, dead spiritually. We're dead in our attempts to know God without him helping us. We're dead morally and we're dead spiritually. He says we're, you're dead in your trespasses. And then he says in the, circum, the uncircumcision of your flesh. He's saying two things in this, this phrase here, the uncircumcision of your flesh. Firstly, he's saying you're dead because you're, uh, you're an ethnic Gentile to the Jews. Anybody that was a non-Jew was an uncircumcised whatever you were. Remember back in to David, the story of David and the, and the giant Goliath. Uh, David took his, his five rocks and his slingshot and, um, you know, Goliath was spouting out curse words both at the, the, the dismal Israelite army that he saw in front of him, but also their, their supposed to God that was going to protect them. And David says, um, now, how dare you uncircumcised Philistine defy the, you know, the army of the living God? And so David was kind of ticked off that this giant was, um, um, you know, was, was talking about his God. And so a Jew, to a Jew, uh, a non-Jew was unclean and they called them uncircumcised uh, I'm circumcised in, in their flesh. And so he's firstly saying that. But these words should also sound familiar to you, because in verse 11, we, we talked about um, Paul said to the Colossians, you were circumcised with a circumcision not made with hand, not made without hands, by the putting off of your body of flesh, the circumcision uh, of Christ. And so here he's painting a picture of 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 you in your life without uh, without the, the attribute of the cross applied to you, without you being justified by the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus. He's talking about your sinful nature. The flesh is, is Paul's term for our sinful nature, that part of us that's not yet submitted to God. And so before Christ, this is this is really the lot for all of us. We do what we want. We think what we want. We live life the way that we want to. That is uh, that is the, the really the lot of our life. We are and want to be our own authority. Worse, we make ourselves to be our own God. OK, we create we make our own throne. We put a crown on and we rule over our life and as many of those around us as we possibly can. We all do this without the Holy Spirit. Our flesh is in total control. The Bible tells us we live to satisfy our flesh. And that really is what it means to be dead in your sins. And this is a hard word. And I would tell you it's a hard word because inside of us, we want to be good. Think about and most of us, especially when we're little, we think in terms of good guys and bad guys. Uh, my sons play with Legos and, you know, they they not, they not only buy the, the Lego blocks separately and build things, but they buy the, you know, the the, the boxes that come with a, a certain character. And although they have some bad characters, you know, some of the Star Wars characters because they look cool and all that. And they, they need a bad guy to fight against the good guy. In, in more chances than not, they've wanted they've wanted to buy and get as a gift the good guy inside of us. We want to be associated with the good guys. None of us want to be the bad except for Scott Williams back there. I see him talking. Scott's a Star Wars fan, and he buys the good. Now, you're, you're conflicted. He buys the good and the bad all together. The bad guys look cooler. The bad guys, the bad guys do look cooler, but most of us want to be the good guy. You can't tell me that you don't. I know you all. We want to be the good guy. But here's the deal. The Bible says that we're not the good guy. We're the bad guy. Heart pill to swallow. You're not the good guy. You are the bad guy. 
you are you can be very spiritual. You can have good values. You can have good actions. You can do things that are right in life. You can have good character um, day in and day out. But the Bible says that without Jesus, without the Holy Spirit in your life, you're, you're dead. There's nothing that that bring that that helps you do what God says to do. There's nothing that merits his favor in your life. So the misnomer in our society is that you can think and even act like you're good. And the truth is, we can even be very spiritual and have no clue as to who God is. No clue as to who God is. And so really what Paul is doing here, he's not giving us two categories of sin. He's not saying that you sin in the trash, you sin uh, in terms of your trespasses and then you sin in the circumcision of your flesh. He's saying that we sin by things that we do and we sin by things that we don't do. And so it's not just you lying, cheating, stealing sexual uh, sexual acts that the Bible does not condone that that counts as sin. It's all those things that the Bible says do that you don't do. When's the last time that you love your neighbor as yourself? Um, when is the last time that you were kind to somebody that wasn't kind to you? When have you forgiven someone? Because the Bible says forgive or you won't be forgiven when that person didn't even deserve your forgiveness. That's what the Bible tells us to do. And so uh, sin is when I do things that I'm not supposed to do, when I commit a sin. But it's also when I don't do what I'm supposed to do. And this goes all the way back to really to Adam and Eve, to our first parents. I think Psalm 51 uh, kind of encapsulates this for us. Psalm 51 says this, have mercy on me, O God. This is David. Um, this is David singing and praying to God after his sin with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. You know, those are convicting words. It's saying before when I was conceived and before my mother even gave birth to me, there was sin in me. And that word iniquity, that's uh, that's you doing what you want to do. Okay, back to this idea of, uh, you know, we really do. um, We we have a crown on. We're on a throne and we're reigning and ruling over our lives. And uh, this is interesting because, you know, we just did baby dedications last week. And so this is saying that all those those handsome and cute little babies we had up here as as precious as they were. okay, there's no way you can tell me they've got sin in their life. But the Bible says that. There's iniquity already in them, even as a, as a baby. OK, and it takes a little bit of time for that to to to, you know, to come forth. But at some point, the iniquity in a child, it all ha- it happens. It happens naturally. It comes out. That's what David is ta- telling us right here. And so I would tell you, we don't become morally and, and spiritually dead because we're sinful. We're sinful because we're spiritually dead. OK, so the sin, the, the deadness in our spirit doesn't come from what we do. Our sin doesn't make us dead. We're dead because we sin. Does that make sense? Did I say that right? 
I think the main problem with, with being spiritually dead is this. We can't respond to God. That's Paul's point. You cannot respond to God. You guys remember the movie Sixth Sense? Bruce Willis. This is about 14 years ago. I don't remember any of the characters or anything. I can't remember even what Bruce, char- Bruce Willis's character was named. It was an interesting movie. Um, and I didn't really figure out what was going on until it was like over. But um, it, seriously, it, it's one of those weird kind of movies. This is clairvoyant, clairvoyant little boy. Actually, you know, he could. This is one of my favorite lines in the movie. He's like, I hear dead people. I, I see. I see dead people. You know, I, I go around the house and I see dead people. Um, and so this that's necromancy. Whenever you can see and, and talk to the dead. It's divination. Don't don't do it. Don't ask for that. That's 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 of the devil. All right. It's one of those it's one of those ways we get suckered into believing in Satan and, and his schemes. Trying God, God, give me the power to speak to dead people. I want to speak to my grandmother. That's that's necromancy. It's, it's divination. And in the Old Testament, it says you should you should be stoned for that. Don't wish for that. So this is Bruce Willis's deal. And I'm, if you haven't seen the movie, it's too late. It's 14 years later. You should have seen it already, right? <laughs> He's dead, and he doesn't even know it. And the reason why this little boy who has this gift is even talking to him is because Bruce Willis is dead, and he doesn't even know it. And here's the deal, folks. Perhaps some of you, even in this room, you're dead, and you don't even know it. That you're, you're trying to live life. You're trying to do good. You're trying to be good. You're trying to have good character, but the scripture is telling us you're dead. If, if you are outside of God, if you are, don't know Jesus, aren't following him, have not been washed in his blood, you have not made him, um, you have professed faith in him. And it says you're dead, no matter how good you are, no matter what good you do. Hard words, but it's true. And this really does resemble our lives. Because we try to be moral people. We, we try to be good and do good in all kinds of ways. And for those of you who grew up in Christian homes and you don't even remember at what point you actually start following Jesus. But all you know is that you've had a kind of a good life. You didn't really get in trouble. I would tell you, well, what about your thought life? Have you thought wrong thoughts? Um, have you fantasized in your mind about doing things that you overtly you know, outwardly didn't do because you uh, because the legalism in your home forbid you from doing it. Uh, for those of you that, you know, that you you get all that, that social causes and social action brings you joy. That those are good things to do. But um, but without the gospel changing your heart, you're doing that. And it, it, it still doesn't merit favor with God. And so there's no external act that we can do, regardless of how good you do it, that merits God's favor for you. And really what this hits the the fan is, is simply this. A lot of times when we do good and try to be good, we're doing it in our own strength. And if you try to, to, to do right, this is what happens for many of us. At some point, uh, you either do right in your own strength and you have no joy you have anger, you have all this stuff is pent up in you. And that's not the life God would have you to live or you end up sinning two steps forward, four steps back. And that it becomes a seesaw. Uh, 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 a see, what do you call those things? Seesaw. OK, two steps forward, one, uh, four steps back. Romans 3.23 says this. You guys got Romans 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You don't have Romans 3, 23? I just said it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I guess it was for me. Um, we, in many ways, we fall short of God's glory. What's God's glory? It's his standard. What's God's standard? It's his moral law. A great question to ask for us is, what does God require of me? If, if, if being good and doing good isn't enough for God, what does he require of me? I would tell you, we have to turn to the Old Testament and look at God's moral law. Here's what it says. Have no other gods before me. Have no idols for yourself. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. Honor your father and mother. Ooh, that's a hard one. That's one that comes with a condition. It says, honor your father and mother, and, you, and, and thus your days will go well for you. Any of y'all not honor your mom and dad? I'm stepping on your toe. Don't murder. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't cover your neighbor's house. Don't you just get mad at that one? Because like sometimes you're looking over and it's like, gosh, this house is a lot better than mine. I want that house right there. Don't lust. Don't cover your neighbor's wife. This is God's law. And it's in the Old Testament, but God expects us to keep this. Yes, the ceremonial law and some of the governmental things that Israel had as a, as a nation have, 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 have ceased. But Jesus says, I have not come to condemn the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus says in the midst of his, his longest and greatest sermon, Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, he says God requires you to be perfect because he's perfect. He wants us to, to keep these, to live these. That's what verse 14 is talking about. Verse 14 says this, that God has um, he's canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, which presupposes that there is a record of debt that stands against us before he canceled it. What's that record of debt? It's, it's, God's, it's, it's the legal demand. It's the moral law that God holds over us, that he wants us to not only live by, but 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 do and to do in a, a perfect kind of way. It's his Ten Commandments. These are like mirrors showing us who we are. OK. And then when it reflects who we are, we should see ourselves in light of of Scripture. And oftentimes we should find ourselves to come up wanting because we've all fallen short of God's standard. God's law represents his 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 character. We should never see the law as being bad. OK. It reflects who God is. It reflects his character. Romans says that the law has been written on our hearts, even if we're not a Jew, even if we don't know the law. We've never read the Bible at all. It's written on our hearts. We kind of sort of know what God expects of us because he's written it on our hearts. The law, in many ways, is called the ministry of death, a ministry of condemnation. Why is that? Because God wants us to know that we can't perform these laws. We can't do any of this Ten Commandments stuff in and of our own strength. We need him to help us do it. And that was the point. The law was meant to drive us to the God that we serve. All right. So this is where we get to the good news. You all get the picture. You got to get, you get the picture I'm trying to paint for you. We, we have a problem. We have a problem because we've sinned and aligned ourselves with God's enemy. We have a problem responding to God because we're dead in our sins. We have a problem because we've not kept God's laws perfectly. And these are big problems. And that's where we get to the good news. 
And the neat thing is God didn't wait for us to be able to. He didn't wait for us in the goodness of trying to do good and trying to be good to cut, you know, to finally get to that point where we could we could meet his standard. Okay, he did something for us because he he knew we would never be able to do it. And that's what 15 verse 15 talks about. I'm sorry. uh, Verse 14 first. Um, So so Paul says we were dead. And that God canceled the record of debt that stood against us by its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He, he nailed your debt to the cross. And so I said, uh, firstly, your debt is that you can't fulfill God's moral law. There's, we see the Ten Commandments and we see the exactness of it. And we should, we should in, our, in our minds, in our flesh, say, hold our head down in shame. Almost like Charlie Brown walking away saying, there's no way I can do this. This, my, my life is over. I cannot do what I'm supposed to do. You know how Charlie Brown used to act, right? When he'd fail at something. But this is what Paul is saying here. He's saying God cancels our debt. How, how many debts do you have in life? We, we all have them. God does something so that we aren't crushed by the demands of the moral law. That's what he's saying here. Another way of describing this record of debt is as an IOU. I mean, you remember IOUs when you were a kid? You write something, you, you know, you'd, you borrow somebody's pencil, borrow some money from somebody. Somebody does something for you and you just write on a piece of note, I owe you whatever you owe them. He's saying your, all your IOUs have been torn up, burned up, thrown away. How good is that? All the the list of things that you owe God because you are you sin, not by choice, but by nature. They've been thrown up. They've been thrown away. All those things that we absolutely can't pay back to God. God's canceled that record of debt for you. You know, the essence of religion is that we try to work off our debts somehow. We, We know how we fail God. But often the way that all of us try to reconcile that is we try to do good. We try to be good. And the the moral law says there's no way that you can be good or do good without God's help. And so here God helps us. He cancels the record of our debt. All those IOUs that you owe. He's torn them up. How does he do that? God comes up with a plan. He puts his son on the cross. And with his son nailed on that cross, he takes all your IOUs and he nails them with Jesus. All those IOUs. You got a lot of them. You got a lot of them. And he nails them to Jesus cross. And that's where verse 13 comes in. Verse 13 says, we are made alive in Christ and forgiven of our sins. And so God, through Jesus, bore the, the, the weight of the wrath of all of our sins on the cross. And on Jesus' cross, instead of making us bear the weight of the, the burden of our sins, he makes us alive by his death on the cross. Not only that, he forgives us of our sins. So that now, when God looks at us, he sees the, perfect, the, the, the perfection of his son, who perfectly lived a life that we couldn't live and died the death that we deserve On the cross. The implication of this is some of you all have have debts. Some of you have physical debts. You have financial debt, car loan, mortgage payment, 
credit card debt, what would it feel like, especially if you have a lot of it, for someone to just say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tear up these notes and you can just go live life, have the car, have the house, don't worry about paying it off. I mean, that was like, amen, right? We'll do a little dance with that one. What, this is what God is saying. He's like, I, I'm going to tear up your car note. I'm going to tear up your house note. I'm going to tear up all your credit card debt. You're, you're free to go free. You're free to be free to live in, in me because Jesus has done it for you. That's what he's saying. And so it's not just a financial debt that he's canceled. It's the debt, a debt that you absolutely cannot repay. That's what Jesus has done. That's the implication for you. Your greatest debt has been paid. Everything else in your life pales in comparison to that. So verse 15, and I'm almost done. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. This is the good news. This is the very good news for us. God disarmed the rulers and authorities. That means he, he's dealing with Satan. He has dealt with Satan and he continues to deal with Satan on your behalf. He's disarmed Satan of his weapons. What are Satan's weapons? His weapons are sin and death. How do I know his weapons are sin and death? Try not to sin. Try not to die. He's the God of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air. God has given him uh, he, he was created with power. He has power on the earth. He has more power than you can. Um, you can withstand by yourself. That's why you need God's help. And Satan's power over us is the sin, our sin nature. OK, he he uh, holds over us all these ways that we um, that we sin by commission and omission, doing what we shouldn't, not doing what we should. And then the, uh, the, the fact of sin in our life is the, the fact that we die. OK, why do we die now? Why is death so hard? You ever you've gone to a, a loved one has died. You've gone to a funeral. That grieving process is so hard because death is unnatural for us. Death is here because sin is in our world. And Satan has power over both of those. And this verse says Jesus has God has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. He's taken away those powers from Satan that he holds over us. He's completely canceled our sinful nature. That's what we read in verse 11 and 12. And he also makes death so that it's it's not it shouldn't be a fearful thing for you, because in Christ, um, though your body may die, Paul says you will yet rise again and you'll rise to newness of life. You'll rise forever, forever and ever in eternity with him, Satan no longer holds victory over you in terms of sin and death. Here's the other thing. On the cross, Jesus put Satan and his demons to open shame. The NIV says it like this. It says he made a public spectacle of Satan. I love those words. He made a public spectacle of Satan. And what this means is on the cross, Jesus showed that through weakness, Philippians 2 tells us, through weakness and humility comes power. God exalted him higher, gave him the name that's higher than any name on earth. Um, the picture here, the imagery is of a Roman general that's gone out and he's had a battle with some foe and he's gained the victory. And in his victory, he's taken all the treasuries of, of the kingdom he's come against and he holds them up in victory. I've gotten all the treasures, all the loot from this, this, this kingdom and this nation that I've destroyed. And they bring the prisoners back. OK, they have them in procession coming back into their home city. And this is the spectacle part. They strip them naked. 
They have him in a parade behind a chariot and tied to the chariot is the king of the defeated of the defeated nation. Open spectacle in front of the home crowd and everybody's cheering. And this is what Jesus has done. Jesus is 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 Christus victor. He's gained the victory for you. There's two applications for, for, for us for the day in regard to this. The first is um, you've been made alive. You've been made alive. Perhaps you're here today and um, you're dead and you don't know it. Scripture says that when you trust in Jesus, when you put, when you put your faith in him, he gives you the Holy Spirit and he turns your dead soul, brings it back to life. But if you're a Christian here today, then Paul is exhorting you that Satan has no hold on you. He doesn't triumph over you. You shouldn't be obsessed with him because he's Jesus has turned your dead soul to life. He's made you alive. Not only that, he's put Satan to uh, he's made a spectacle of him. You know, so much of the brokenness in in my own life comes from the lies of the enemy. He did, He's a deceiver. He's an accuser. He's an adversary. He, the same thing that we see him doing to Adam and Eve in the garden, he does to us even today. And so this verse is an encouragement to us that God, through Jesus on the cross, has disarmed Satan of his weapons. He no longer can hold those over you anymore. Absolutely not. And so of course, it's a process of you letting go of the lies and, and instead of believing the lies of the enemy, believing what God has said about you. Who is who God is, who he said, what he said about you and how he's called you to live in light of what he's done. That's what God would have you to do in Christ. You've been made alive. You don't have to seek a greater righteousness, being right, doing right. God has set you apart in the gospel. You've been set free from your debt by the cross. The last thing, the last application would be the question of, I mean, have you experienced this? Have you personally experienced being made alive? We don't do uh, you guys have noticed. I don't do, uh, you know, some churches you go to you. Uh, the pastor gives an altar call and you have everybody bow their head and, and close their eyes. And you talk about Jesus dying on the cross for you. I, I've been talking about that for the last 45 minutes. Right. So I can't say anything more than the, what you already heard. But uh, you know, I didn't come to faith. In a church, I didn't come to faith walking in an in, in aisle. And that's one of the reasons why I don't believe that you have to necessarily uh, respond in that way in church to come to faith in Jesus. But I do think you have to respond. And so every week I make an effort. Let's respond. Let's respond to the word. And so today I want you to respond. I give you a, a, a card on your three by five card and a, a pen on your desk. I want you to actually use it. And so I'm going to ask you two questions. And the first question is. Have you been made alive? Do you know? Do you know that you've been made alive? Have you experienced this? Do you have understanding that there's nothing in you that merits God's favor outside of Jesus Christ and what he's done for you on the cross? Do you understand what it says when the Bible says that you were you're dead in your sins, in your trespasses? That God's a holy God. And that because of the rebellion of Adam and Eve, all have rebelled and we're born with iniquity in our hearts. 
And there's nothing in us that merits God's favor. In other words, there's nothing that you can do that's good. Helping someone, doing some good, that's going to make God love you outside of you trusting in Jesus Christ. His perfect life lived on the earth. His death on the cross, dying in your place for your sin. And so if you understand that, write that down. I, I, I understand That without Jesus, I'm dead. The second question would be this. Have you received Jesus? That, that really is the second step. And receiving Jesus is more than just understanding that he died on the cross for you. Because a lot of people understand that Jesus was a real person who lived a real life, died a real death. They might even believe that he rose from the dead. They might believe everything that they've been told about Jesus. But unless you receive what you know, then you are still dead. So have you received Jesus? And if so, write that down. And if you know the date that you received Jesus, write that down. And I want you to do one thing. One more thing. Write your name on it and put some contact information on it. Why is that? Because people who know what the Bible says in in terms of their spiritual condition, but also have received Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, they tell people about it. Okay? And so I want you to tell somebody about it. We're going to tell somebody about it by you writing on that card. Um, And then what I want you to do is put that in the connection card box. My goal is if there's those of you here who have yet to understand what God has done for you in Jesus on the cross and have yet to receive him. And the benefits that he provides for you, then I want to I want to help you. I want to help you gain spiritual understanding who God is, who you are in light of him. I want you to gain spiritual understanding. How do I live in light of what he's done? That's what salvation is. Thirdly, put the chart up, guys. And so if you've never received Jesus, do you have it? Okay, there it is. If you've never received Jesus, I I don't like telling people how to pray to receive Jesus. But this is a this is a prayer of belief that I think is a good pattern for those of you who have never prayed with someone or to yourself uh, to express what you believe about about the Jesus in the Bible. OK, so let's pray this together and then we'll be, we'll be, we'll be done. It says, dear God, pray with me. You've made me. You've cared for me even before I knew you. And even while I was running from you, I'm so weak and sinful. I admit it now. But I also know I'm fully loved and accepted by you because of your son, Jesus, thank you for taking the full punishment for my sin on the cross. You offer me forgiveness and new life, and I receive it. I receive you. I want to change. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, I want to learn to live and love like you. God, I don't understand everything at this point, but I understand enough to trust you and love you because you first loved me. Amen. That's that's a prayer of belief. It's, It's not necessarily a prayer that you have to pray. But if you've never prayed to receive Jesus, 
but you have it in your heart to want to trust him, know him, follow him, then this is an adequate prayer. And I would say if you prayed this with repentance toward God for your sin and faith in Jesus, then the Bible would say you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus. You've been you've been made alive. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that beyond my feeble attempts to convey it and all that's been heard today, that you would do a work in the hearts of all of us here. God, take this, these words and seal them not in our heads, but in our hearts. I pray especially for those who today are hearing for the first time that, that outside of Jesus, they're spiritually dead, that there's no life in them unless they have repented in of their sins and profess faith in Jesus. Give them life. I pray that you would give them an ability to believe. You'd open their hearts to receive your word, but also to receive Jesus. God, I pray in our hearing right now today that you would cause dead souls to come to life. That we'd, that we'd experience new life in our midst. Lord, for those who have been walking with you for a while, I pray that you would encourage them with these words. That they, despite how difficult life might be, despite whatever, what might be going on with them, you know, sometimes we forget. We forget that we forget what life was like before we became a Christian. We forget um, all that you've done for us. Remind us today. Encourage us that we were dead, but we've been made alive by Jesus' death on the cross. And it's in Jesus' great name that we pray. Amen and amen.